when we're looking at the book of Acts, we, we need to just remember that this is not just strictly a historical account of things that have happened in the life of the church, and nor is it strictly a prescription of how we live our lives together as a church, but it is this beautiful kind of weaving together of the two. And throughout the book of Acts, I think there's four things that we're seeing that are kind of standing out. The, the first is we're seeing the authority of Jesus, and, and it's, in, it's the, in all the, the sermons, all the, all, the, all the preaching that's happening in Acts, that Jesus is Lord, he's the king who has conquered death. We're, we're also seeing that we, as followers of Jesus, have an assignment, and that is that we are to carry the name of Jesus. And, and that's not just an assignment that's for uh, what we would think might be spiritually elites. It's not just an assignment for the pastors or the missionaries. That's an assignment for all of us. That's my assignment, your assignment, that we would carry the name. That's the, the reason that we are alive. Next, we see the assistance uh, of, the, of the Holy Spirit. There's the power of the person of the Holy Spirit doing amazing and radical things in the life of the church through the book of Acts. And then finally, we're seeing uh, assimilation. It's this beautiful calling of God uh, gathering people together into a body or into a family that is called the church. And this study in Acts has a few desired outcomes. There's some things that we want to see happen because of our study in Acts. If you've been tracking with us, you've heard uh, Tim, who's the lead pastor here, he's been saying, we don't want this to just be us talking about Acts or looking at it and saying, man, that's really great for them, that's nice for them. But we're praying that God would make these things show up in our midst, that they'd be happening here with us, that we would be the exceptional church, not just read about the exceptional church. And so there's a, there's a few desired outcomes that we have. First, um, that all would go. Some will go far, but that all would go. And we have to go into the world uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the Acts is compelling us to. So the, the point of this series is not that we all just become experts in the book of Acts. In fact, the more knowledge we have of what God is doing and what God has commanded us, I think the more liable it makes us to make him known in our world. Second, um, that we would be rooted in and sent from a church that is marked by words of truth, the gospel, the, the, the word of God, and also deeds of love. That we'd be a, a church that holds fast to the word of God, to the truth of God's word, but that that so motivates us and so compels us to be a church that acts in grace and mercy and love towards our neighbor because that is truly what makes an exceptional church. And then lastly, and this is what we're going to camp on really uh, the most this morning, is that we would live with courage and confidence in a world that looks chaotic to us. One of the outcomes of our study in Acts, and then the one we're going to camp on the most this morning, is that we would live with courage and confidence in a world that seems chaotic to us. And kind of the operative part of that is to us, because it's not chaotic to God. You might feel like your world is out of control to you, but God never feels like he has lost control. And we have to root down in that. And really live by that. So let's pray and ask God that he would just help us with that this morning. Father God, we love you. And God, we thank you for a, a moment like this, a day like this where we can gather together. God, to make a loud noise, to honor you, to be reminded uh, of who you are. God, I thank you for what Tyler led us in in communion to be reminded of this relationship that we've been invited into at supreme and extravagant cost to yourself. That Jesus, you are Lord, that you are King, that you are our salvation, that your kingdom is forever. 
God, just incredible truths for us to be reminded of. God, I pray for those who are working with our kids in, in children's ministry, even now. God, give them strength. Let the kids be calm. God, let them listen well. God, give the teachers just encouragement this morning. God, as they invest in and potentially shape the future of your church. And God, help us, I pray, that as now we open your word, God, that you would be the one who teaches us. So Holy Spirit, move in this place like only you can and do the things that only you can do. Control me. Jesus, uh, this is always and only about your fame and your renown. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 12. Let's read this text together again. We'll put it up on the screen if you don't have the scripture with you. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And that verse 5, that's a kind of a key point for us today, that the church was earnestly praying. So we see again in this scene that this church is under intense persecution James has been put to death under the sword. Now, we, we can read that because we don't really know James. We're like, oh, that's too bad for James. And we just kind of glance over that. But if we put this kind of in our kitchen, if we put this in our context this morning, it'd be like I come up here this morning and said, guys, bad news. Jeremy has been put to death with the sword. And Tyler has been arrested. How would that affect you? So what the... These are real people. This is, this is a real scenario that this church is going through here. Herod is using this persecution for his own political advantage. The Jewish leadership is perpetuating this persecution. So, so if I said, Jeremy has been put to death with the sword, Tyler's been arrested, and this town of Gilbert loves it. And they're going crazy over it, and they want more. They're coming after the rest of the church leaders, and they're going to be persecuting you. You have to put yourself there in that place as we, as we read through this text. And it, because while the Bible is saying that James has been killed, it's not a stretch of the imagination that the other members of the church and church leadership would also be experiencing violence towards them too. Peter's arrested here. Herod is being applauded for the slaughter of Christians. This time Peter is when, is when arrested. There's four squads of four soldiers that are guarding him, which is a bit excessive for a fisherman. But the scouting report on these guys is, look, you can put them in prison, but it's really hard to keep them in prison. So you put them in there, there's an earthquake, and next day they're teaching in the temple. So we got to get serious. So Herod says, I'm not messing around. So four squads of four guards, but we know that is not a challenge for God because look what happens in verse 5. The church is praying, verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. And suddenly... Verse 7, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off his wrists. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. 
And they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city and it opened for them by itself and they went through. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed, but she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. There was a Jewish belief that it would have been uh, Peter's guardian angel. And, and some scholars think that they wouldn't have wanted to go to the door because they wouldn't have wanted to face the reality that Peter was, in fact, dead and his angel was here to tell him the news. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and describe how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James which is obviously a, a different James, and, and other brothers and sisters about this place, he said, and he left for another place. And in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. There's a truth I want to pull out of this text that I think is very important for us as we want to walk in the vibrancy and the vitality that I believe that God has for us in Jesus. And then there's a, there's a so what, a response for us as a church. Um, we want to we walk out in regards to that truth. Here, here's what I'm going to pull out. Despite all the beauty in the world and all, all the life in the world and all the blessing that comes from being alive, the world will at times look chaotic and out of control and there will be heartbreak and loss and suffering that feels to us incompatible with the God of love. And although it looks chaotic to us, it never looks chaotic to God. God is never worried that things are slipping out of his control. There's one pastor who says God doesn't drive an ambulance, meaning he doesn't show up on the scene shocked. What do I do? How do I put it all back together? There is no triage in the kingdom of God because God governs the chaos. And we need to put roots there and we need to be solid there because the world is broken. And we need to put roots there because um, one day, there, there will be a day, if there hasn't been a day already for you, that you will be perplexed, not crushed. You will be confused, and it will be hard for you to reconcile the goodness of God with your present circumstance. And so the truth we want to root in on this morning is that God reigns and rules over the chaos in our lives. The reason that Christians, followers of Jesus, have joy, not always happiness, but joy, in the midst of chaos and pain is because we believe that God is sovereign over all things and that he is good and that he is beautiful in his governance. But it raises questions. How then do we reconcile those things? The classic question, you've been hit with it, you've asked it before. If God is good, how can you explain all the things that have gone wrong in the world? If God is good and God is sovereign, how do you explain the death of children? How do you explain the rampant injustice in our world? And I've been there, I've been eyeball to eyeball with teenage girls who have been sold into prostitution by their parents. I've wept with parents who have tragically and suddenly had an infant pass away. 
Just last week, I got a text from a, from a friend of mine who said, please pray for my baby girl. Tumors in her legs. It's cancer. I've been there. I've, I've seen it. So how do you explain these things if God is all-powerful and good? I'll give you the answer. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm only um, 38, which I realize is relatively young. At least that's what I tell myself. Um, but I've listened to a ton of brilliant theologians teach on the truths of God. I've read a bunch of books. I've been to other places in the world and had these kind of conversations with leaders in other places in the world. I've had some experience. But what I understand about God's rule and God's reign, I have to glean from his word. Because my experience, your experience, your knowledge, your understanding, my understanding are so small and so sad compared to the infinite wisdom and understanding of the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and always will be. How could I possibly comprehend how God is governing in this world? I've got three kids, six, seven, and, and four they have a view of the world that is not similar to my view. They have a way that they think the world should be. Their world includes a lot of Paw Patrol and chicken nuggets, right? So they, they have a view of the world that is not similar to mine. They have a view of what they should eat that's not similar to mine. They have a view of when they should go to bed that's not similar to mine. And how, basically how their life should go that's not similar to mine. My view is quite different because I'm about 30 plus years older than they are. So if that gap exists between them and me, what must the gap be between that which is finite and that which is infinite, that which the scripture says is due on the grass, which is here in the morning and gone by the afternoon to the sovereign king of glory. If I understand everything about how God is governing, then he is way too small of a God for me to worship. But still, it raises questions. How can we trust that God is good in our difficult days? Church, we have to come back to the cross. I mean, come on, it has to be the cross. It has to be that place of God's initiating and pursuing love. The death of Jesus Christ on our behalf for the glory of God is the anthem of God's goodness that has to be on repeat in our hearts and in our minds and show up in our lives. Because it's at the cross that I'm reminded that he is for me, not against me. Because if he wasn't for me, then Christ wouldn't have come. And so I have to go to the cross in difficult days and know that Jesus is for me. For the believer in Christ in bad days, regardless of how soul-crushing, horrific, overwhelming those bad days might be, for the Christian, they always ultimately lead to better days and into the best of days. Because for the Christian, our hope is in tomorrow. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He's not a liar. He said, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. One of my favorite passages of scripture we talk about here all the time is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, those who follow Jesus, those who, who love God, all things work together for their ultimate good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We have to be reminded of these promises of God. But still, I realize there's questions. Questions like, what about the loss of good things? What about the loss of beautiful things? I don't know if... I, I honestly don't know if I should confess this or not. Um, but I worry 
about the loss of good things. I, I, I worry about something happening to me because I'm selfish. I worry about something happening to my wife, something happening to my kids. I worry about the loss of beautiful things. Second Corinthians chapter five helps me out with this. As Paul says this, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What the Apostle Paul is saying here in this text is that this body, this life, this place we live, this is camping. Now, I love camping, but there's a reason that there's a time limit on how long you could stay at a campsite. Because this isn't home. We want to be more clothed than this body, Paul says, because this body breaks down. This body gets sick. This body feels pain. This is a tent. This isn't home. And when people talk about what is mortal, they're talking about life. But Paul says something phenomenal here. He says, he says what is mortal will be consumed by life. Because we believe there is a type of life that is greater than the life that you and I are walking in now. All the beautiful things that we are afraid of losing in this life will pale in comparison to the beauty that we experience in the next. The scripture teaches us we should not feel comfortable here because this isn't home. But our home is coming. But Paul acknowledges, and it's so true, but until then, we groan. Until then, our satisfaction is found in God and God alone. There will come a day when the sorrow that we rightfully feel about our loss, we will not remember. There's a day coming where we will not feel loss. God will sustain you regardless of what your circumstances is. And I need to remind myself, when I get all spun up on the potential and maybe even the inevitability of loss in my life, I need to remind myself that the grace that I will need in that moment, God will supply, but not before. And I need to remember that there is nothing that I can imagine that God couldn't hold me up under that he wouldn't take me through. And, and also, I'm not saying that God is the author of evil. He's not. He can't be. The Bible is explicitly clear that is what meant for evil, he will take and mean for good. But we are, we're looking here at the book of Acts and all these beautiful, amazing blessings that are happening in the book of Acts. Remember, Stephen was killed. Stephen, he took care of widows for crying out loud. Why kill Stephen. We, we, we see that James is killed with the sword in this passage. Peter keeps on getting arrested, and one day Peter's going to be crucified upside down. But even in the midst of all that, God is working in the chaos. So how do we respond? If that's true, we believe it is true. God's working in the midst of the chaos. How do we respond to that? I think verse 5 tells us how. In earnest prayer. In earnest and intense 
prayer. Paul, Paul Miller says this, prayerlessness leads to a strange powerlessness, emptiness and burnout even in successful churches. But prayerfulness leads to an equally strange power, fullness and energy even in discouraging environments. Prayer is not a ministry of the church. It is the heart of ministry through which the real functional leadership of the union of the Spirit and Jesus formed at the resurrection operate. What he's saying there is in prayer, the same power that was available at the resurrection is available there in your moment of prayer. There, there's three things we're going to look at just real quick as we describe earnest prayer. The first thing uh, as we look at earnest prayer, it, earnest prayer trusts God. Earnest prayer trusts God. When your first reaction to a problem or pain is how you are going to fix it, you prove that you trust yourself. When your first reaction to a problem or pain is prayer, you show that you trust in the power of God. Because you notice what the church here does, they, they, they pray. They don't get together and try to hatch out a big like breakout plan or anything for Peter. They, they go to prayer. Now, there's something to think about. That. Do, do, you think, do you think they prayed for James? And James was arrested. I do. And James was murdered but yet the church continues to go back and pray and trust that God is able. Eugene T. Peterson talks about evening and morning prayer. Morning prayer is when you petition God and boldly pray against things in this world that are not right. Evening prayer is when you pray your worries to God. I, I don't know about you, but nighttime is kind of like the moment when I do all my worrying, it seems, when I'm trying to go to sleep. That's when my thoughts get more irrational and more blown out of proportion. And that's why the evening prayer is so important. You pray those worries to God. And that's, in essence, what the church was doing here. They're committing what worries them to God. So earnest prayer first trusts that God is able. Secondly, earnest prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. This is an idea uh, borrowed from Pastor John Piper. He says this, Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. What he's saying is that prayer is to be a mission-critical conversation to where you are praying in line with the mission of God, not simply this creature comfort monologue where you're sitting in the living room asking for more potato chips. The church wasn't sure what was going to happen to Peter. In fact, they thought he died, but they were certain about the will of God. They were certain about the mission of God to see the gospel go forth in the whole world. So they prayed that God would make it happen. They prayed aligned with the mission of God. And so when we pray, church, we need to pray the promises of God, which means you need to know the promises of God. They pray the scriptures. That's what it is to pray with God. We pray for the kingdom of God to come in our lives, to come in our communities, to come in our families, to come in our world. You have to know the mission of God. You have to know the promises of God so that you can pray the missions of God because that's what earnest prayer does. 
And lastly, earnest prayer is persistent prayer. The, the, the phrase there, and when it says earnest prayer, it means an intentional, ongoing prayer. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because when they were watching him do uh, teach and when they were watching him do miracles, they noticed that the source of power for these things came from his prayer life. And so they don't ask him, Lord, teach us how to write a killer sermon or teach us how to do these miracles because they know that his source of power comes from prayer. So they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he launches into the story in Luke chapter 11 to illustrate to them this principle of prayer. And Jesus said to them in Luke 11 verse 5, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight, which in this culture was ridiculous because you'd go to bed around sundown, which is like 7 p.m., hallelujah, and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, which is also ridiculous because that would be enough food to feed a, a, a small family for several days. And you say, a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no other food to offer him. So Jesus is describing an excessive request at an incredibly inopportune time. Look what happens. Suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. But I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because, and I love this phrase, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And so Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. And to further make the point, he says, which of you fathers, which of you parents, if your son asks for a fish, will you give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, meaning you then who are earthly, Know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Notice, by the way, what he says will give. What's he going to give? The Holy Spirit. Because what we're learning in Acts is that God's plan requires God's power. God knows what you need. You need more of him. The, the, these verbs, ask, seek, knock, they, they reinforce this teaching on persistence. They're all in this Greek form that implies a continuous action. So for ask, it it's, should be read, just keep asking. It's like when I'm going through the checkout line with my kids at Target, Daddy, can we, Daddy, can we, Daddy, can we, Daddy, can, can we get this, can we get that, can we get that, Daddy, can we, Daddy, can we, Daddy, can we. Persistent. That's how you should be. Not them, it's annoying for them, but for you. Keep asking. Keep knocking. If I'm laying in bed at night with my wife and I hear, as a kid, they just fell out the bed. They'll figure it out, right? <laughs> my wife will nudge me. Get up. What was that? <sighs> Pretend to sleep. But if there's a banging, we up. We're checking it out. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. One of my kids' favorite activities is to hide the remote control for the TV from me. And they, they love to step up their game during football season. I get home from church, all I want to do is just watch a game. Come home, can't find the remote, all the kids have amnesia. So you know what we do? This is an all-skate search party. Everybody is involved. Activate all assets. Everybody up, let's go, let's find it. And we will not stop until we find it. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Because it honors your father. 
when you come to him like that because you prove that you believe he is able to do abundantly and immeasurably more than you could ever dream, dare, or imagine. This man gives over the bread and Jesus says, won't your, won't your heavenly father who never sleeps, who loves you like precious children, won't he give you whatever you need to do his will? Won't he give you whatever you need to, to do his mission? The early church believed that he would, and he did. In Acts chapter 1, they pray in the upper room for 10 straight days. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches, thousands are saved. In Acts chapter 4, they pray God fills them with such boldness that they turn the city of Jerusalem upside down. By the end of Acts chapter 5, the church in Jerusalem is over 10,000 people strong. And some of the harshest critics of of, of the way are, are saved. In Acts chapter 12, our text this morning, they pray God blows up a prison, strikes down Herod. You see that in the next couple of verses. This, this persecutor of the church, God gives him a bad tummy ache, fills him with worms, and kills him. In Acts chapter 13, they pray and God raises up Paul to be the greatest missionary the world has ever known. One author has said that the history of missions is their history of answered prayer. All these things happen because of prayer. Samuel Chadwick says the the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies. He fears nothing from prayerless work. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer brings fire. Prayer brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. The suffering and the persecution we're going to see is not over for the church in Acts, and it's not over for us. But where they continue is where we must continue in prayer. So here's what we do. This has a so what for us. It's not enough to just say, man, another message on prayer. I feel guilty again like I always do when somebody talks about prayer. What are we going to go have for lunch? (laughs) We got to do something. Corporately, our response is to prayer together. We have a prayer meeting here on Wednesday nights in room 201 or 202. If you've been through Launch Point, uh, that's the community's room upstairs in the, the children's building over there. It meets on Wednesday nights from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Church, praying together in your RCs and your redemption communities. Spend time praying together, earnestly praying together. Um, There's a story of Charles Spurgeon. There was an American pastor who came and visited Charles Spurgeon and said, what is the secret of your success? And Spurgeon took him downstairs to a room where there were about 300 people praying. He says, this is it. He said, we call it the engine room. Our engine room meets on Wednesday nights in room 201, 202. Corporately, that's our response. Personally, church, learn and rehearse the promises of God. Hide them in your heart so that you can be reminded of and rooted in the truth that God rules and reigns over what we perceive to be chaos. Around here, some of us will take like a three and a half by five card or we'll take like a sticky note or just a scrap piece of paper. And at the top, we'll write just whatever it is that we might be praying for. And then underneath it, we'll write a a scripture that aligns that that shows how God solves it or how God is greater than that. So whether it's you're praying in finances, you write about the provision of God, you're praying in health, you pray where God heals, you're praying for 
for uh, a, a loved one who does not yet know Jesus. You pray about the mission of God. We're praying that the kingdom of God would come in these different things. And put that piece of paper, scrap paper, post-it note in a prominent place, someplace you'll see it every day. Maybe bathroom, mirror, desk, computer, whatever. Sometimes I'll take mine and, and put it in the dashboard of my, uh, of my truck. You know, cover something that doesn't matter like the speedometer or whatever. Just kidding. Uh, but I'll put it there. So I'll, so I'll see it all the time and I'll be reminded. And that is a way that I'll memorize these promises of God. In church, we have to do that because we have to be reminded and rooted in the promise that his purposes will not be thwarted. We have to be reminded and rooted in that there is a day coming where men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will worship the name of Jesus. We have to be reminded and rooted that there will be a day when there will be no sorrow over the far, former things that have passed away. I want to encourage you this morning that if you'd like to pray with someone, as soon as I pray in just a moment here, we're going to have some people up front, some of our pastors, some of our leaders who will be available to pray with you. And if God's really put something on your heart this morning, if you come in here heavy laden and burdened, God says, come to me. And so I just want to invite you to that. Let's pray and just ask God to help us with this this morning. Father God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the way that you are near us and that you hear us. God, thank you for the way that you um, are always working. You are a God with work gloves on. God, I thank you that your arm is not too short to save. God, I thank you that you're never asleep at the wheel, that you're never off the job, you're never on vacation, but God, that you are constantly working for your glory and for our greatest good. And so God, would we know that? God, I pray for those in the room today who feel like prisoners shackled. God, would today they know that you set captives free, that you are a freedom bringer. For those who feel hopelessness, God, would they feel hope in you. God, for those who are sick, would you bring healing? God, for those who are doubting, God, would you um, bring a, a assurance? God, for those who are weary, God, would you bring comfort and strength? God, do I know that you are able to do immeasurably more. And so, God, would we be a church that fully believes that? God, we can be a church that is known for so many things. God, I pray that we are known for a church who's earnest and dependent in our prayer for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.